0: or text Wondery Pod to 500 500.
2: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here. And as long-time listeners know, Ion travel is normally produced each week from a different destination around the world. And the good news is we're about to travel again. But in the meantime, I'm happy to present to you this special broadcast from the Whitley Hotel in Atlanta, Georgia, recorded right before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. And if you've never heard of the Whitley, actually you probably did hear of the Whitley because it's the former Ritz Carlton in Buckhead and has a great story as well. My guests this week include Dr. Meredith Evans, the director of the Carter Presidential Library and Museum, Karchik Sim Alvarado the author of Atlanta and the Civil Rights Movement. If you're hungry, Akilah Sankar Makana, author of The Culinary History of Atlanta, and much more. So here's our show from the Whitley Hotel in Atlanta. It is 18 minutes after the hour. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Whitley Hotel here in Atlanta, Georgia. You can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com. With your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here. On the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard but very essential work all around the world. But even better than that, an opportunity for you to immerse yourself in an up close and personal way and give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities and Atlanta is certainly no exception. Check out Open Hand Atlanta, was founded back in 1988. They're a nonprofit organization and they're working on eliminating disability and untimely death due to nutrition-sensitive chronic disease by creating access to what? Healthy meals and nutrition education. Believe it or not, they prepare, pack, and deliver 5,000 healthy meals each day throughout Metro Atlanta for those who otherwise might go without. There are a lot of people who are in food crisis and these guys are doing a great job and you can help. No, no experience necessary, you can do it every morning, after afternoon, afternoon, in the evening, weekends, you'll meal pack, you'll deliver, you'll help with culinary assistance. I don't think you're going to have to cook. But here's the cool thing about working with open hand, you're working with the people who actually live here. And who better to give you the real tour of Atlanta when you're done than the locals themselves. If you want to know how you can volunteer, just go right to openhandatlanta.org slash volunteer, or go right to our website for the complete list on a global level. Uh, I'm honored to have our next guest. He's the president of the Buckhead Coalition. By the way, we are in Buckhead. I remember this hotel when it was the Ritz-Carlton in Buckhead, but he's also the former mayor of Atlanta, Sam Massell. How are you, sir?
3: Yeah, fine. Glad to be with you.
2: I'm glad you're here. Uh, You know, I say we're in Buckhead. Not everybody knows where Buckhead is in Atlanta.
3: Yes, if they did, I'd give them a little lapel pin uh, to show that they were so knowledgeable. It's a part of Atlanta, the northern quadrant, of twenty-eight square miles, a hundred thousand people, fifteen thousand, uh, fifteen hundred retail units, uh, uh, three hundred places to eat and drink. I could go on, but I know you've got other material. No, you
2: can you can go ahead and go on. Tell me more about Buckhead.
3: <laughs> well, uh, it's a very affluent area, and uh, it was really a a sort of a sleepy bedroom community uh, when the Bucket Coalition got started 33 years ago. And uh, today it's a thriving uh, metropolis. It's really got a skyline, unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really a
2: city within a city.
3: It is, absolutely. We we have the uh, retail mecca of the southeast here with 1,500 retail units, uh, which is unbelievable. I,
2: now, I have to ask you this question, because if I were to walk today up Madison Avenue in New York, between 42nd street and 86th street uh every third store is vacant uh the retail operations in new york have been taking a hit how is retail doing here
3: retail is doing well here because we have such a mix such a uh a variety of, of stores uh in all price ranges but um, we we have just recently uh a few years now had a new area called the shops Buckhead which is actually changing its name as we talk to, to the West Village of Buckhead. Uh, but it's a real high end, uh, like sort of the Beverly Hills of the, of the West, uh, of the East. And um, so we uh, offer something for everybody. I know that sounds like a politician's talk, but... Well, you're uh, a former
2: politician. You can well, say that.
3: Well, I spent 22 years in elected office. I, I have to take a minute and thank you and congratulate you and compliment you on... On the uh, effort and support you give to nonprofits, that's really very meaningful. we uh,
2: We do that every week, sir. Yes,
3: yes. Uh, can I put in a commercial for a nonprofit, not a nonprofit, go ahead. but go ahead. Uh, we just the bucket coalition just kicked off uh, a uh, an initiative. To help nonprofits all over the country, uh, we started with one here in Buckhead. We found that banks, uh, the brick and mortar uh, branches, are no longer used—the uh, dinosaurs—because people are doing everything, you know, electronically and whatever, and very modern today. Uh, so we've asked banks to take in one nonprofit and give them a desk and a file cabinet and a uh, and a place to have a telephone. And uh, it'll boost their image. It might even generate some incremental business for the bank. Uh, but it'd be a, a good way to uh, to become a part of this community.
2: And the nonprofits then get a storefront.
3: Yes, absolutely. They get an address. They've got legitimacy there. Exactly. There are thousands of nonprofits.
2: Now, as the former mayor, I hope you don't take offense at this, but I've always described Atlanta. As a city that still doesn't really know what they are, <laughs> they're still evolving, and and um, well, that's and, not all bad. No, I didn't say that. <clears> I, throat>
3: I, throat> I, throat> I, I, no, I told <throat> you not
2: to take offense. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that every time I ask an Atlantan to describe and to define their city, I don't really get a full answer. But they're here, you know. Yes.
3: Well, that happens when you travel and you say you're from Atlanta, uh, they don't ask you to oh, tell me about Midtown. They say, tell me about Buckhead, they've heard of this, and that's not by accident. We, we do brand this as the address of choice, but it may be a, a, a state of mind. That may be the real definition. And you're, you're a native. Yes, sir. I was born here over 92 years ago and still working daily.
2: You know what? That's why you're still 92, because you're working daily. That's what's doing
3: it, right? (laughs) Well, that'll help both of us. You've got a while to go.
2: No, I'm right behind you. Uh, The other thing that I noticed about Atlanta, and and you have so many great restaurants here uh, and so many great places to go to eat, but this is what I noticed about people who live in Atlanta. I describe Atlanta as a city that has the most underutilized personal kitchens in America because everybody eats out.
3: There is a lot of that indeed. In fact, uh, Buckhead, the area that uh, I manage with this Buckhead Coalition nonprofit, uh, has 300 places to eat and drink. And I'm expected to try all of them. So it, it takes me a year to get around and start over.
2: <laughs> that's why you wouldn't live until 92. You're eating well. <laughs> yes. Uh, but th- I mean, if you take a look at that percentage of 300 restaurants and eating establishments in a relatively confined space. Yes. That's a lot.
3: Yes. And it's a good mixture, too. In fact, we publish an annual book called The Bucket Guidebook. It's uh, free uh, for for request, on request. But uh, uh, in there, we list restaurants. But unlike other literature periodicals, it lists several steak houses and several chicken houses. So we (laughs) list only one of each. Uh, that way uh, they can stay off my back. and uh, But I give the tourist, the traveler, something. If he wants it, he can find it. Well, let's
2: talk about just you and me. Where, where are you going to take me for breakfast?
3: Oh, no, that's not fair. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm supposed to represent 300 places. Where do
2: you like to go? Uh,
3: there's a place called the White House. <laughs> Obviously, that would attract me. It sounds political. The politicians do hang out there and some powerful business people. Uh, it's been in business since 1948, if you can imagine. Wow. Uh, but it's uh, uh, actually owned by a great family that uh, has had it all this time. And So
2: you don't go there for the food. You go there for the conversation.
3: Well, uh, my wife, Sandra, joins me uh, and lets me read the newspaper, in fact. But <laughs> uh, it's hard to do with that, uh, without shaking a lot of hands.
2: All right. So we'll go out of breakfast to lunch.
3: Uh, lunch, uh, you know, <clears throat> you can't turn down bones. I mean, that's, that's, steakhouse. that's, that's a, steakhouse. a steakhouse and, and dinners where, uh, they f- have a wait list, but, uh, they, they serve a damn good lunch too. So, uh, you can even get a hamburger there if you want.
2: And then of course there's dinner.
3: Well, our favorite, and you're sure putting me on dangerous grounds, but, uh, chemo, <laughs> Uh, owned by Pano Oh Now, let me guess, it's Greek. Well, it, it, it is Greek, but it's, it's a seafood. They've got a, the widest selection of fresh fish uh, you'd find anywhere uh, that I know of, and um, it's all well done and well prepared. And his son actually runs that now. They've, in fact, he's published a book on his recipes and so forth. It's a good restaurant. You won't go wrong there.
2: Okay, so now I have to ask you, as, as a native Atlantan, And a longtime resident here in Buckhead, what's your biggest challenge?
3: Wow, Uh, that's a tough one. The biggest challenge, you know, uh, I I spent 22 years in elected offices, including four as mayor of the city and eight as president of the city council. But uh, you have crime, one crime is too many. Uh, You have traffic, any congestion for four minutes is too much. You have taxes. I don't have to tell you how much is too much. So uh, those three issues you're going to face in any urban center in the country,
2: and overdevelopment. Uh,
3: uh, Well, uh, overdevelopment you can handle as long as you do it, you know, uh, knowingly that uh, you've got to have balance. Uh, We do things, uh, although our organization doesn't have the power to do it. We. We know where the bodies are buried, and we're able to get it done. (laughs) You know
2: what? We'll end it right there. You know where the bodies are buried. That's a political slogan if I've ever heard it. Sam Mousel, the former mayor of Atlanta and the president of the Buckhead Coalition, thank you very much, sir. It's an honor to be with you. And likewise, right back at you. Back with more from the Whitley in Atlanta right after this.
4: a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now here's Peter. It's 33 minutes after the hour. Peter
2: Greenberg here with you from the Whitley Hotel here in Atlanta, Georgia, otherwise known as Buckhead. And, of course, as I say every week, you can always reach me at Peter at com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. In fact, let's do that right now. I've got uh, Richard Safra on the phone. Hello, sir.
3: Hi, Peter. How are you?
2: Good. How can I help you?
3: Uh, my grandson's uh, bar mitzvah is uh, shortly scheduled for uh, Israel And we're planning to fly from Chicago to London to Israel um, and the reverse uh, 10 days later. Uh, In view of the worldwide uh, coronavirus pandemic, what is your current recommendation for international travel at this time? And do you think Israel is a safe place to visit at this time?
2: All right. Well, there's a two-part answer, and they're both conditional answers. Uh, I will give you a qualified yes on both. Um, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on television, but I do travel more than most people you know, and I will tell you that if you take a look at where this disease is, where it's been uh, at least isolated in certain areas, where they're trying to contain it in others, uh, and as long as the airlines are flying there—and the only reason why the airlines wouldn't fly there is if people decide not to go— Remember, the reason why the airlines canceled all their flights to Asia was not out of an overabundance of caution about the disease. It was because people were not on the planes. It was a a specific economic decision. But for me, would I go to Israel right now? I would. But you have to practice basic personal hygiene and and common sense. Wash your hands before and after eating, before and after going to the bathroom. If you're on a plane, uh, take some antiseptic wipes and wipe down the surfaces that your skin is going to touch. The tray table, the armrest, the seat backs, uh, the the air nozzle above your head. That'll take you all of 15 seconds. And you know what? That's what I would do. And stay away from, uh, you know, the salad bar. Uh, Just make sure that your food is served to you by a waiter uh, on an a la carte basis. And I think you'll be in good shape. Uh, I'm saying this all relatively. Now, I have no idea who has pre-existing conditions, what your metabolism is like or what your immune system is like. But I would say in general, it would not stop me from traveling. Now, you asked a second question, which is, do I think Israel is safe to travel to at this time? Uh, in my book, Israel's always been safe to travel to. Um, no, no different than any other place in the world. You just exercise basic common sense, that's all. And it wouldn't stop me from going. I, I hope that's been helpful.
3: Uh, thank you very
5: much, Peter. Much appreciated.
2: You got it. We've got Bernard on the phone. Hello, Bernard.
5: How are you, Peter?
2: Good. How can I help you?
5: Okay. Uh, I just booked a 12-day tour of Poland with a tour operator. And within all the paperwork, uh, it suggested trip insurance. Now, I normally don't get trip insurance because over the past few years that I have been traveling, my credit card handled, you know, had trip insurance. But then when I went and I checked, I just couldn't find anything about the benefits. And then I Googled it, and it seemed like Citibank... Got rid of their travel benefits benefits back in September 2019. Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to find out. You know, is there a good card out, a good credit card out there that has good travel benefits?
2: Well, can I make a suggestion that'll go, go over ahead. and above just the travel card question? And that's okay. this: you have to read the policy language carefully to see if the insurance you were getting by having that travel card or that travel credit card was actually going to be useful to you. Um, you know, but it wasn't just Citibank that that, that cut their travel benefits. Uh, Chase did it for many of its cards. Discover did it for many of those cards. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, City eliminated a, a number of things like trip cancellation and trip inter- interruption insurance. But remember, if you go online, I'll give you an example. If you go online to make a purchase on a trip, whether it's an airline or a hotel, you can't even complete that transaction unless you either opt in or opt out to the travel insurance question right there on your screen. And they make you opt in and opt out before you ever have a chance to read what the policy says. All they're saying to you on that screen is, you know, get peace of mind for trip cancellation insurance. But you haven't seen the fine print. You haven't seen page five of the website. My, my idea here is this. There are two kinds of insurance you need to get and it's not with a credit card. And you can buy it okay. from any travel agent from a third party insurance company. The first kind you want, of course, that we just mentioned is trip cancellation and insurance. Um, and. You want it that's, that it's a very comprehensive policy that that allows you basically to cancel for just about any reason. Uh, and then and you pay a higher premium for that, but there's your peace right. of mind. And then the second card that you want, it's not a card again, it's a service, is medical evacuation and repatriation insurance. And everybody should have that, whether they're going to Cleveland or Calcutta or Poland um, and what that does, and that's offered by companies like uh, Medjet Assist and Travel Guard, those are the two that I happen to like, uh, but there are many others. Where, in the best uh, written policy language, uh, if you're sick or injured overseas, they will pay to have you medically stabilized at that location. And then, in consultation with your own physical, your own personal physician, after all, who knows your medical history better than your own doctor, they will then pay to fly you back. And here's the key part, to the doctor and medical facility of your choice. That's what you want. That's an annual policy. Uh, they have right. them for families as well. But if you actually do the amortization of the cost versus how much it would cost you if you didn't have it, you'd be a fool not to have it.
5: Yeah. Well, see, over the f- past few years, uh, I subscribed to GeoBlue, which is basically med- medical evacuation you know, once we're outside of the country. And the reason I got that is because, you know, a few years ago I still had the trip cancellation and all sure. the benefits that the credit card had. Right, but, but remember, now,
2: but, re- but, but remember, not all those benefits are what you think they are on the credit cards. In many cases, it's, it's, it's even called secondary insurance. So my advice is, You can call a travel agent. They can sell you that trip cancellation and interruption insurance, just like any other travel product that they sell, and you'll be better off. Bernard, thanks so much, man. We really appreciate that. That music means we're taking a quick break. When we return, more from the Whitley Hotel here in Atlanta as Ion Travel returns right after this.
4: Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel.
2: It's 43 minutes after the hour. Peter Greenberg here with you from the Whitley Hotel here in Buckhead in Atlanta. Of course, you can always reach me at Peter at PeterGreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. My next guest, an Atlanta native, then she flew the coop with some magazine stints in New York and then in Nashville and then was uh, seduced to come home by her husband (laughs) I have to I have to give her full name now because she just got married, Lauren <laughs> Finney Harden.
6: Yes.
2: See, I, I got it all in. <laughs> Only married since November. Congratulations. Thank you. Who's the editor in chief at the Atlanta Magazine?
6: I am. I am. So
2: being in Atlanta, and you're the perfect person for me to ask this question because it's a city that's continually evolving. I, 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 you know, I said this before and I'll say it again. Most of the people I talk to about Atlanta who live in Atlanta, if I ask them to define Atlanta and describe it, they can't do it. Because it's a city that's still trying to find its way. Don't you feel that?
6: Always. I think that the word that defines Atlanta is change. I mean, between the real estate development that we have going on, between the people moving here, um, we are constantly changing.
2: And you've seen the changes, right? I mean, I remember when this hotel was the Ritz Carlton, right? Uh, And it it was the hotel at the time. It was the flagship of the entire brand. Uh, and then everything built up around it. It was just, everybody had a hotel in Buckhead and everybody had a hotel downtown. Everybody had a hotel. It was crazy. It was. Yeah. <clears throat> and then of course you change your sports stadiums. You change, <laughs> right?
6: I mean, right? Yes. We like new things here in Atlanta. You
2: do. I'm going to tell you something that I'm convinced about. And I said this to the, to the former mayor when he was on, I don't know anybody who lives in Atlanta who actually cooks in their own kitchen you have the most underutilized kitchens and big homes I've ever seen because everybody goes out to dinner.
6: That is that is probably actually very true.
2: And I'm sure the people that you profile in your magazine, they'll pose in their kitchen. They've never eaten there.
6: That is quite possibly true. Um, we love writing about food um, for the title, and I, in particular, have an affinity for the food here because there's just such a, an array of, of excellent options.
2: It, there is. Now, in the days in which I used to eat meat, I've, I've not had a piece of meat now in about 11 years. Oh my gosh. And I'm feeling, I, I miss it terribly, but I'm feeling pretty good about it. But when I used to come to Atlanta, don't laugh, I, I hit two places all the time, right? Varsity and Fat Mats.
6: <laughs> good choices.
2: I know, especially Fat Mats. They let me in the kitchen one night and I actually saw how they used all this molasses to basically marinate the ribs for days. It was unbelievable.
6: That's why it tastes so good.
2: No kidding. <laughs> and I still miss it, but I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. But you like that, Matt?
6: I do, I do. I like, look, I, I, I'm an equal food person. I like most foods, and we have so many here. The Varsity, I can only do maybe once every two years or so. My husband eats there on the regular, because we live right by it, but.
2: <laughs> of course, you go to the Varsity for a dog.
6: Yes, slaw dog.
2: And you can drive in.
6: Absolutely, that's what do you a, have?
2: What do you, that's it, what do you have, what do you have, what do you have? Uh, The Atlanta food scene, and you guys write about it all the time, is exploding.
6: Absolutely. Um, There are so many new places. There are so many old favorites, too, right? Like We constantly are covering our old favorites like Chops or Buckhead Diner because they're still just as good as they were 35 years ago.
2: Well, tell me about the Buckhead Diner.
6: Um, The Buckhead Diner is a special place in my heart because – you know, as, as a high schooler, we
2: used to sneak out <laughs>
6: for prom and stuff like that was like, Oh, we're going to Buckhead diner. We're going to preachy. We're going to chops. It was very much a special moment and they really still are special places to have those special moments.
2: Are there photographs of you at the Buckhead diner?
6: There might be some from way back in the day. I think there are some, you know, one three West, you know, bat mitzvahs I attended their photos floating around somewhere.
2: All right. So that's Buckhead
6: diner. Yes. Chops. Yes. Um, let's see, what else? I We love Buckhead Life in general because I was at Fish Market the other day and I used to go to the fish market every year on my birthday and it was such a big deal. It was my favorite place. I completely forgot they had a sushi bar in there. Well,
2: when I first came to Atlanta and they had a sushi bar, it was not a sushi bar. <laughs> it was imitation crab yeah. rolled up. Yeah. Right? I mean, it was terrible. But now you get to source everything. It all comes in through the airport. And now you have amazing fish here.
6: Absolutely, I, used, I, I do think of Atlanta as a port city. Someone once said that to me and it really changed my perspective.
2: Explain that to me.
6: Um, we have so many flights coming in and out um, and we have so much commerce moving through here that it really does feel like it's a major hub. So when people are like, oh, you're landlocked. I'm like, but we have, who knows how many fresh fish deliveries a day?
2: Okay, well you just mentioned something that was interesting to me. So, how many people coming through here? It is a hub. Yes. Obviously, busiest airport. You've got Delta home-based here. Yes. How many people are not just flying through here, but actually flying to here? Because people tell me they've been to Atlanta, and when I dig a little deeper, I find out they changed planes at the airport. Yes. That doesn't count. So yeah. when we come back, we're talking to Lauren Finney-Harden. I got the, all three names Thank in you. again. you. The editor-in-chief at the Atlanta Magazine. I want to talk about that, about how many people are actually coming to Atlanta as opposed to just changing at the airport. Fair enough?
6: Absolutely. And then we'll
2: discuss the new restaurants that nobody knows about. Okay. Is that a deal? Sure. All right. Lauren Finney-Harden, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta, back with more of Ion Travel from the Whitley Hotel, formerly the Ritz-Carlton, for those people who have a sense of history, as Ion Travel returns to Atlanta right after this.
4: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Been listening to I on travel. For more on anything you've heard or to ask a question, just visit our website at petergreenberg.com. Now, once again, here's Peter Greenberg.
2: It is 52 minutes after the hour. Peter Greenberg here with you from the Whitley Hotel here in Atlanta, in Buckhead to be specific. We've been talking to Lauren Finney Hardin. I almost said Hardy, <laughs> and your husband would kill me. Lauren Finney Hardin, the editor in chief of the Atlanta Magazine. When we just left off, I I posed the question about And by the way, I see this happening in in the Gulf states overseas and in the Emirates and in in Qatar, where these are hugely busy airports, processing millions of people a year, but a very small percentage, only a very small percentage actually gets off the plane and stays there. So what's happening in Atlanta?
6: What is it, 100 million people come through Hartsfield jackson International Airport, something crazy like that? Yeah. I don't know the actual percentage that actually stay, but I think that it's part of my job is to make them want to, right? We have so many cool things. We have food. We have the Beltline. We have the attractions. Um, there are so many things pertaining to lifestyle in Atlanta that I think a lot of people are missing out on. Like? Like... Um, for example, I, I know it's become kind of a tourist attraction, and I used to live there, actually, so I was living right in the middle of it, but Pond City Market. Yes, it's, you know, this historic structure, and it's so cool, but it's got—
2: a what's, f- what's
6: there? It's got this great food hall. Um, They've got retail shops. They've got the connection to the Beltline. So it's wonderful as an Atlantan who grew up driving, you know— Would drive from one end of the parking lot to the other to be able to walk out your door and to go for a mile, mile and a half walk with a friend, with your family, and kind of pop in and off um, all of the businesses on the Beltline.
2: I got it. Now you've got some traditional restaurants here. We do. Right. I mean, you've got the colonial. Yes. But they have that in New York as well. Correct. Right. And and I've I've been that, and that's great Vietnamese food in in a very French way. Yes. Okay. So, but give me one that's a surprise.
6: Oh, goodness. La Colonial is one of my absolute favorites actually here because it is such a scene and the food is good.
2: And by the way, if you're smart, you don't go there for dinner, you go there for lunch.
6: Absolutely. They have the best lunch deal ever. Tell me. Um, you get like a full-sized appetizer. You get um, one of their delicious entrees and I believe a dessert. And it's so affordable. Um, it's a beautiful setting. Like I think more people should be taking business lunches there.
2: Exactly. But in, uh, most people, I mean, m- when I come to Atlanta, I really don't go out to lunch. I go out to dinner. Yes. You know? Okay. So let's talk about dinner. Redbird.
6: Yes. Redbird is one of my favorites, Um. partly because I can walk there. It's about a three and a half minute walk.
2: But But you know what? I would, let me be devil's advocate here. I would never describe Atlanta as a walking city.
6: Exactly, exactly. So the former New Yorker and me, my husband and I, always are picking neighborhoods where we can walk, and that was really important to us. Um, And so to live at Westside Provisions, where we do, there are so many restaurants there, Redbird being one of them. Chef Zeb is always in there. He's so personable. The food is interesting. And it's just food that he wants to make, which sometimes I feel restaurants here can be bound by, it has to be Southern, it has to be Cajun, it has to be a steakhouse. He just makes whatever he likes, and I like that.
2: And when was the last time you went to a Braves game, a Hawks game, or a a Falcons game?
6: Falcons game, we went last season. I think it was middle of January. Um, And it's been a while since I've been to the Braves Well, if you
2: went to a Falcons (laughs) game in the middle of January, that means they were in the hunt for a a brief minute.
6: For a brief minute. It might have been December. I can't remember. (laughs) But I mean, the the stadium is amazing. And I can't say enough nice things about that stadium.
2: And how about the Hawks?
6: The Hawks? Actually, I went to a Hawks game last year. The Hawks are the Hawks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Phillips Arena does have a great new facility, though. I, um, I've i heard it's amazing. I haven't been up to the new VIP or anything. but
2: Well, in one of our upcoming shows, we're going to talk about the great ballparks in America. Because uh, I go back to the old field before they redid it. Yes. Right? Uh, but baseball stadiums in America, speaking of food... If you take a look at the Pittsburgh Stadium, Three Rivers, the old Three Rivers, right? If you take a look at uh, City Field in New York, mm-hmm. uh, the old Shea Stadium, you know, you take a look. Of course, you have to talk about Wrigley Field in Chicago. I mean, the food offerings in those stadiums are amazing. And same thing here in Atlanta.
6: Absolutely. So I, it's been about more than a year since I've been to SunTrust, which is now Truist Park, um, and the food options are, are fantastic. You know, you go get your barbecue, you go get, um, I think it's Fox Brothers that's there, and you go and you sit up in the stands, and it's actually nice to be in a smaller, more intimate stadium. Um, I do have a pro tip, sit behind home plate as high up as you can get, because the breeze is amazing.
2: So you go for the air br- conditioning. I go for the air
6: conditioning. <laughs> Hey, it can get really hot out there in the outfield.
2: Hey, it's Georgia. It is. It's summer. It is. Okay. And, and it's not a dome stadium.
6: No, not anymore. No.
2: No, I got it. So the other thing that I do when I, when I travel, and I travel more than most people, is I do all my errands in other cities, right? So I'll go get a manicure not yes. in the city in which I live. Yes. I will go, uh, I'll go buy clothing in another city. I never shop it back in New York. I just, I'm just because it's easier for me to like, oh, like there's a store I want to go to, and then you go right. Yes. Where do you Where do you go? Do you do the same thing.
6: I do. I do. Um, the former New Yorker and me, and Nashvilleian and me, always likes to keep up with what's hot in other cities. Um, but I, there are some places here that I think are absolutely worthy. And um, you know, I think destination shopping is a huge thing. Just like you said, um, it's not just about where am I going to eat and let me plan that itinerary, but also. Um, Where can I shop? What can I experience while I'm here?
2: And by the way, if you're going to shop anywhere, just make sure they ship.
6: Yes. (laughs) Um,
2: And if you're not going to a name brand national store, the cool thing is you're not going to necessarily pay taxes because they're shipping out of state and the UPS charge is not that bad.
6: I like it. Work the system. I like
2: it. Especially if you go to an independent bookstore. That's what you want to do. Lauren Finney-Harden, Editor-in-Chief of the Atlanta Magazine, thanks so much. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We have a whole lot more coming from the Whitley Hotel right here in Buckhead in Atlanta as Ion Travel continues right after this. Thank you so much, Lauren.
7: Thank you.
4: You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. And welcome back aboard Eye on Travel. If you're just joining us
2: on this April weekend, I hope you're having a wonderful time wherever you are. Let me tell you where we are. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 33 degrees, 44 minutes north. 84 degrees 23 minutes west we are in atlanta georgia actually in buckhead coming to you from the hotel whitley of course you can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com with your name phone number question or problem we will solve it right here on the air Uh, i've been looking forward to our next guest coming for a while because i'm a fan of what she does i'm a fan of of the uh, of the company she keeps and most of you i would guess have not been to where she works and i encourage you to go She's the director of the Carter Presidential Library and Museum right here in Georgia. Dr. Meredith Evans, how are you?
8: Wonderful. Hello.
2: And we were just offline. We were trying to figure out how many different presidential libraries there are, and most Americans don't realize that not every president has a library. Um, I think there are only about 14. Uh, there's you know, FDR and Truman and, and Eisenhower and, and Kennedy and Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, which is where you are, uh, Reagan. Uh, George H.W. Bush, um, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama. And Obama. Right? Yes. And so in, in the 20th century, I think everybody got one after after Roosevelt.
8: Officially, yes. Or, or her, and Under Herbert the Hoover. National Archives. And,
2: and Herbert Hoover, too. And Hoover. Yeah. And I think uh, right now uh, there'll be one for Trump and there'll be one for his successor, et cetera. But That's the hope what's the most amazing thing to me about a presidential library is it's not just a celebration of the president. It's a celebration of the presidency. Am I right?
8: Yes. Yes. It's a place to learn about civic engagement and how it's done.
2: Yeah. I mean, and then the exhibits that you have um, are not necessarily always related to that particular president. It's under that umbrella. So if I went to the Reagan Library, they, they would have an entire exhibit on Genghis Khan. I'm like, Really, fascinating stuff, right? Uh, now, they'll also have an exhibit on the Berlin Wall because he was president when the wall came down. Remember, Mr. Gorbachev teared down that wall. Um, actually, he was not president when, he, when that wall came down. He had already left the presidency because it was George H.W. Bush in 1989 when it fell, but it was his speech in Berlin that was the famous speech. What is the biggest surprise exhibit that you have um, at, the Carter, at the Carter Museum?
8: I think the biggest biggest surprise is learning about his upbringing. Um, Plains, Georgia, is smaller than Nepal.
2: The peanut farmer.
8: The peanut farmer, but you get a good idea of what it was like to grow up there, um, what he learned from growing up there, and you and that really helps you understand the president and the presidency when you know their foundation. And, you know,
2: you're you're basically dealing with all the archives, all the documents, all the letters, the papers. Yes. Right. So it's a, it's a wonderful place for scholars to come who are researching either Carter or the presidency itself. But you have such an opportunity for rotating exhibits because when you go through those papers, all of a sudden you see there's history right in front of you in real time.
8: In real time. Even if you were a constituent and sent mail to the presidency, it's probably in our collection. So not... Just serious researchers come, but everyday people come just to see what's there. And when you come into the museum, we have a whole section where you can actually see the archive and learn about what that means and what that is.
2: You know, some of the surprising things about Carter himself, people forget he won three Grammys. How did that happen? (laughs) And not for his singing voice. Spoken word. I know, I know. And let's not forget the Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Peace Prize. For the, the Camp David. Yes. For the the Camp David Accords. Yes. And you get to
8: see his report card where he got a C in music. So you don't have to be brilliant (laughs) to win the Nobel Peace Prize. uh,
2: But you do have to be somewhat brilliant to be a successful president. That
8: is correct. And if you take a look at
2: Carter's history um, and what he was able to do just with human rights and with the the Camp David Accords alone, that would have qualified him in my book. I agree. Uh, He was he was hurt in his, in his last year as president because of a terrible economy and because of the, of the failed rescue mission in Iran. But the bottom line, if you look at his record as, as, as a leader, uh, he was doing stuff that hadn't been able to be done before.
8: That's true. And I would argue that it wasn't a failed rescue. It just didn't, they weren't released until Reagan came into office. But who completed that deal?
2: Yes, but okay, let me go out to the optics here for a second. Whether you want to call it a failed rescue or not, it was perceived by the public as a failure. Okay. And that hurt him. That's true. You'll, okay. I mean, that's a fact. The point is, uh, Reagan ran on a campaign that, you know, you better watch out when I become president because I'm not going to take any prisoners. And all of a sudden, that was used as a lever to maybe get the release of the prisoners uh, or the hostages earlier. But, but again, if you just base it on Carter's record as president, he did stuff that,
8: that uh, that people don't give him credit for, and that were amazing. That was amazing. He is the president to have the most women and people of color appointed to different positions in the government. Yeah, started the Department of Education. Hey, um, he put solar
2: panels in solar the, panels on the White House. He did, and uh, Reagan took him out. He did. Yeah, I know. It's amazing when you take a look at all the things that happened in that administration. Uh, quite amazing.
8: Quite amazing, Panama Canal.
2: What's oh the 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 famous signing over the Panama Canal? Mm -hmm. What's the big for people who come? What's the biggest surprise to them other than the Grammys?
8: (laughs) I think the biggest surprise is looking at um, Camp David and coming through that part of the exhibit. You feel like you're in a cabin. You get to see the images where they walked and talked. Where have you
2: recreated the cabin? Yeah. Wow.
8: It's really pretty amazing, Um, and I think it gives people a sense of how he did things in diplomacy. And then throughout the exhibit, you see his books. He's written over 30 books, and we have placed the books in each section that it relates to. So that's always good to see. So you can do additional work on your end as a as a patron.
2: And he is America's oldest living president.
8: He is now, yes, Absolutely.
2: 95. He's
8: 95, and considering his, his health issues and his recent fall, he's still going, it's amazing. He's still going. I think our exhibit also highlights Mrs. Carter, which is phenomenal. Um, equal Rights Amendment, her work with mental health, it's its nice to see um, both of them um, portrayed well.
2: You know, if you look uh, historically at, at First Ladies, they always were supposed to have a cause. Uh, some of it was just wallpaper and dressing. She actually did stuff.
8: Yeah, she actually did stuff. Equal Rights Amendment, mental health, those are the two big ones, and she's been pretty successful.
2: And. Since there's so much evolving history that you're discovering all the time, because you have so much to look at, what's been the biggest surprise recently?
8: The biggest surprise, I think, is not just looking at his work with energy, but taking it all the way back to the beginning of his career in politics when he was governor, starting the film commission there. We just recently exhibited Georgia on my screen, which was a film exhibit highlighting um, Georgia being the Hollywood of the South, and that started when he was governor. And even through his presidency, he campaigned in LA. And there's some examples of that throughout the exhibit.
2: And let me guess, there's still remnants of the peanut farm in there too.
8: There's lots of peanut farm. (laughs) (laughs) The campaign was called the Peanut Brigade. Um, So planes came with him everywhere he went.
2: Unbelievable, and I I honestly tell everybody, you need to go, you need to go, and, and you'll probably go more than once. Dr. Meredith Evans, the director of the Carter Presidential Library and Museum, right here in Georgia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, You man. former New Yorker, you. <laughs> <laughs> back with more of Ion Travel when we return to the Whitley Hotel here in Atlanta right after this.
4: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's
2: Peter Greenberg. 18 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you from the Whitley Hotel here in Buckhead in Atlanta. And as I say at this time, you can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com. Give us your name, your phone number, your question or your problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our imaginatively named website, PeterGreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world, but even better than that, opportunities for you to immerse yourself in an up-close and personal way and literally help the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. I guarantee you that what you get back from what you give back will be exponential in return and you'll have a much better experience along the way. We always like to localize those opportunities. Atlanta is certainly no exception. Check out the folks at Open Hand. They're right here in Atlanta. They were founded back in 1988. They're a nonprofit trying to help eliminate disability and untimely death due to nutrition-sensitive problems. How many people are, are in, in food danger every day? Well, guess what? You know what these folks do at Open Hand? They prepare, they pack and deliver nearly 5,000 meals every day throughout Metro Atlanta. And you can help volunteer to do the exact same thing, to pack, deliver, and provide culinary assistance. And here's the best part. You're working with the people who live here. Who better to give you to- a tour of the real neighborhoods of Atlanta than the locals themselves? It's a win-win. Uh, morning, afternoon, evening, weekend day, doesn't matter. If you want more information, that's an easy one. Just go right to openhandatlanta.org volunteer. That's openhandatlanta.org slash volunteer, or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global level. Uh, my next guest knows a little bit about Atlanta. She knows a little bit about the Civil Rights Movement. She, in fact, she's the author and curator of Atlanta and the Civil Rights Movement from 1944 to 1968. She's also the chief executive officer of Preserve Black Atlanta. She's busy. Carcheek Sims Alvarado, how are you?
1: Hi. How are you?
2: I'm good. Well, you got, a lot of work. you got a lot of material to work with.
1: Oh, yes, I love it.
2: <laughs> and, and, you know, most people who, and, and I look, I grew up during that period uh, in the 60s. Uh, I can tell you where I was when Martin Luther King was shot. I can tell you where, where Kennedy got shot. And those pivotal turnaround moments of, of great consequence. Uh, and a lot of people can do what I do. That doesn't mean we understand the history, right? It doesn't mean we understand how we got there or, even more importantly, how we got here.
1: Right. It's interesting because of course I'm born much later, but this is the generation that my parents actually come into the world in nineteen uh, between nineteen forty 1940 and nineteen forty four. And it's something about that generation. They were so dynamic. They come into the world and maybe sitting and listening to the stories of, of their parents at the dinner table, they learn about the early years of the civil rights movement some of the social challenges. And they Well come the, the
2: early years of the civil rights movement, when you think about it. People didn't talk about it. It wasn't. It wasn't discussed. It was whispered.
1: Well, depending on which household you're coming yeah, from, <laughs> yeah. because for a family of African Americans to experiencing, well, oh, I'm not talking
2: about within the household. I'm talking about in public.
1: Right, and in, in public, right. So, um, so the thing is, is that it really. Uh, becomes mainstream thanks to the media, and so you have this young generation of activists that emerged during the late 50s and 60s, and they really take advantage of the media and put a lens to the social challenges that was going on in America and to show globally what was going on with African
2: Americans. I mean, the minute, you know, in the age of television, that's really what did it. Because if you could get those images on television and tell those stories, people couldn't hide anymore. They couldn't hide behind political statements or mission statements or, or or laws.
1: Right. And had it not been for journalists actually putting a lens to what was going on during that time period, I wouldn't have the book Atlanta and the Civil Rights Movement, 1944 to 1968. It's a pictorial history of the movement. And many of the images actually came from the Associated Press.
2: At a time when you had the Associated Press, you had UPI, right? I mean, right. Right, I know. I remember... Uh, one of my first jobs in journalism, we had an AP and a UPI machine. And it was it was a teletype. Yes. And, the, and the information would come in and if something was a bulletin, bells would ring on that machine. You knew to stop what you were doing because whatever's going to come over now was a bulletin. And that's how we, we heard about Martin Luther King. The bells rang.
1: Oh wow, yeah. wow, yes.
2: Yeah. So, when, and putting together the book and putting together all these great photos to tell that story. You're also telling the stories of families. You're telling the stories of people who gave their lives. And you're also talking about people whose lives were turned around.
1: Right. It's, it's really amazing. Um, what I love about Atlanta's narrative is that it just doesn't consist of black activists, but it consider, uh, it actually consists of members of the Christian community, members of the Jewish community, and African-American as and, well, too. And
2: their transformation.
1: Right, exactly. Right. And so you see individuals that come together in order to try to create social change. What you see early on in the 1940s, a story that is not told, is how people are actually working towards fighting against anti-Semitism as well as racial discrimination amongst African-Americans as well, too. And that's the great thing about Atlanta is that, you know, one reason why they are at the epicenter, they're considered to be the epicenter of the civil rights movement, is because of the great leadership where people actually come together. But you see the transformation actually in the photographs. You, you see it within the public and the private sphere and the secular and the sacred world as well, too.
2: I remember my mom. we had a black and white television. And I remember my mom bringing me into the living room said, you must watch this. And that's when I was able, at a young age, to understand the, the, the severity and the importance and the intensity of the civil rights movement. And that's when the three civil rights workers were murdered.
1: In Mississippi. Yes. Yes, during Freedom Summer.
2: Exactly. Sweeney. Yes. Uh, Swaney, yes. Uh, Goodman. Yes. And? I'm missing oh, the bird. Oh, I was forgetting. Oh. It. I
1: go in and order a shrimp. Sh- ah! ah!
2: <laughs> but that was when it hit home for me. Right, exactly. Because it wasn't, for me, my last name being Greenberg, it wasn't just racism and the civil rights movement. Now we were getting into anti-Semitism too. Right. It was all bundled into one. And, you know, people need to be able to relate stories and that was the one.
1: Right, and, during Freedom Summer, what people failed to remember that the two of the individuals that were killed were white. Yes. So, and the majority of the activists uh, who participated in Freedom Summer were white college the freedom, students. The Freedom
2: Riders. Yes, right? exactly. I remember them burning out the Greyhound buses. Remember, they yeah. were attacked and amazing stuff. And, and you know, most people, though, and, and please forgive me, but most people who come to Atlanta are looking for Gone with the Wind. You know,
1: right <laughs> it's not I, that
2: I, I know but they're they're looking for the ghost of margaret mitchell to walk down peachtree street and, and help them out you know right. it's, it, but it's so much bigger than that
1: right exactly i was sharing with someone i said when you come to atlanta people do not come here looking for remnants of the past of gone with the wind i mean it really is gone with the wind the gone with the wind is gone with the wind yeah but people come here looking for tangible reminders of the civil rights movement. And you say that in certain places, such as the Atlanta University Center, Auburn Avenue, you still have these physical reminders of, of individuals' organizational efforts.
2: And I still remember uh, a guy who never should have won the office, but he got it. Uh, Lester, Lester Maddox. Maddox. Yes. Oh my God. Crazy Lester with Maddox. Those axe handles, and he was like <laughs> whacking yes. people with them. Yes. And then he had the restaurant where he was selling them.
1: Yes, exactly. Had a, a souvenir shop in Underground Atlanta. He
2: did. He yeah. did. And I mean, unbelievable. He was, he was making a mockery really of, of the segregationists.
1: Right, and he was so blazoned with this racism that even with the cameras being present- He didn't
9: care. Yeah, he, he didn't, didn't care, care that
1: he actually pulled a, a, a gun on an activist who actually challenged the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to see if Lester Maddox would actually comply.
2: About sitting at the lunch counter. Right. That's what it was. Right. That's what it was.
1: And one of the stories that didn't that doesn't get told about that is Constance Baker Motley, who was such you know such a bad girl. She was such a, a tough attorney. She actually served on the Brown v. Board case. She actually sued not only Lester Maddox but also the uh, the Heart of Atlanta Hotel. So she slam dunked two <laughs> legal suits in one day and caused Lester Maddox to go out of business. And then she jumped on a plane and said, "Peace out. I'm going to DC to go and fight." another battle but she did it yes she did it
2: and lester maddox was gone right along, but, yeah, along but, with those axe handles yeah
1: but then he ended up on west peachtree
2: street and became governor a few years later know. <laughs> only by a fluke in the election right right he didn't even get a majority anymore right, right. unbelievable right. the name of the book again
1: atlanta and the civil rights movement 1944 to 1968
2: and, of course, you're also the CEO of Preserve Black Atlanta.
1: Yes. And you can actually see the, the, picture, uh, the photograph um, as an ex- exhibition on John Lewis Freedom Parkway. So I made it accessible to the public. So when you're walking on the trail, you're actually reading a book
2: on the exhibit. So you got all your bases covered. Oh, yes. Everything covered. What's the one thing, the absolute one thing that people need to know about the civil rights movement that they don't?
1: They need to understand, oh, it's a couple of things. I'll be real quick. One is that there were so many women that were involved in the movement. The photographs allows you to see that. And the civil rights movement in Atlanta, and really globally, is actually an interracial movement.
2: And people don't, the images don't always capture that. Right. Right? Right. I mean, we remember, you know, those who were walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, And we saw the the, the people getting beaten up, but we didn't see a lot of the women getting beaten up, but they were there. Oh,
1: they were trampled on. I know. (laughs) Oh yeah, they were.
2: (laughs) Kartrick, Sims, Alvarado, Atlanta and the Civil Rights Movement, 1944 to 1968. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing the book. Thank you. Back with more from Atlanta and the Whitley Hotel as I on Travel continues right after this.
4: Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. information on what you've heard, have a travel question or comment, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. And that flight
2: attendant call button means we're still on the air and in the air here in Atlanta coming to you from the Whitley Hotel in Buckhead. You can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com. With your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. Uh, My next guest is not a native Atlantan. so she's not a Georgia peach, She's a. she calls herself a Georgia apricot.
7: <laughs> That's right, because I've lived here long enough that I'm almost there. <laughs>
2: almost there. And she's also the author of A Culinary History of Atlanta. Her name is Akilah McConnell. How are you?
7: I'm doing great. How are you?
2: Good. Well, you're in the neighborhood. I mean, come on.
7: Yes. Well, you know what? I grew up in Alabama, just about two hours away from here, and I've lived here for almost 20 years, so close enough to a Georgia peach.
2: All right, so people write cookbooks all the time, but you describe yourself as a culinary historian.
7: Yes, that's right. Explain. So a culinary historian, what we do is we're focused more on the stories behind the food. So not just a recipe for grits, but why grits matters, why we eat grits here in the South, why we eat grits here in Atlanta.
2: Okay, so you open the door. (laughs) Akilah, why do grits matter?
7: So grits matter because they are America's first food. You've ever heard the saying, as American as apple pie? Yeah. Apple pie is not American. Apple pie is actually German. Uh, Apple pie comes from Germany. Uh, But grits are American, invented by the Native Americans almost 10,000 years ago. And it's America's first food.
2: And, okay, I'm going to buy that. I'm going to buy that. But has it evolved over the years?
7: It has. Some. The major difference between the way Native Americans cooked it is the Native Americans would have used water in making it. They wouldn't have used the cream and the cheese and the butter that we use today. So it's definitely evolved. That's why
2: they were thinner than we yeah, are. Yeah.
7: Well, that as well as a lot more outdoor activity, a lot less time spent on the internet about, you know, 10,000 years ago. So if
2: you're sitting online today eating grits, you weigh 350 pounds. Maybe, maybe yeah, but
7: maybe not.
2: All right, so that's America's first food right there.
7: It is, and what's amazing, I think, about something like grits is, it's a food that here in Atlanta, we have the opportunity to share with the world, and a lot of people come here and they're like, I've never had grits before, what is this? Or, you know, you've seen movies like My Cousin Vinny talking about grits, and people don't know what are grits, and they taste it and love it.
2: Okay, that's grits. Yes. What else goes back that
7: long? Oh, so many things. Barbecue. Actually, barbecue also invented by the Native Americans. Um, Barbecue, actually, the original name for barbecue is barbacoa, which was a Caribbean, a Taíno word in the Caribbean. The Taínos? Yes, the Taíno Indians. Oh, wow. So, so barbecue goes back that long. Even the way in which we make things like hush puppies, cornbread, corn cakes here in the South, we continue to eat a lot of original Native American foods. Okay,
2: how about Johnny cakes?
7: Uh, John, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned Johnny cakes. So, Johnny cakes is actually the original Native American cornbread. It's um in the Native American times they would make corn cakes. They called it corn cakes. It translated to English, and it was just uh cornmeal water and fat then the colonists picked it up the colonists called it hoe cakes because the skillet they used to use was a hoe fun fact for you george washington's very favorite food ever was the hoe cake with maple syrup he used to eat it for breakfast every morning didn't turn into johnny cakes until after the civil war because the civil war soldiers used to cook it they were known as the johnny rubs johnny cakes
2: well, let's be honest. With enough maple syrup, cardboard's going to taste good.
7: <laughs> that is true, but I will tell you what, we actually teach, in addition to writing this book, I also own a food tour company and um, called Unexpected Atlanta. And we also teach antebellum cooking classes. And we teach- Using
2: st- the same ingredients.
7: Using the same ingredients. And we teach um, students, as well as non-students, how to make um, hoe cakes using an ad- original recipe from the antebellum time period. Actually, the recipe we use is from the first African-American cookbook published in 1881. And it still tastes delicious today.
2: Now, I'll tell you something that I usually associate with Georgia, and I'm pretty sure it's not true. Uh, But when when Eastern Airlines was around, if you were flying Eastern Airlines, you had to come through Atlanta. I mean, that's in Mm -hmm. the days. And every time I came through the old Atlanta airport, you could actually buy a side of bacon at the airport.
7: Absolutely. Right?
2: But that's not Georgian, is it?
7: It is absolutely Georgian. Bacon is our most important food. So, uh, I'm so so sorry to hear that. (laughs) So, other than cornmeal, um, so historically, uh, you know, another fun fact for you uh, in the Civil War, Atlanta held the largest, actually held 100% of the Confederacy's bacon one hundred percent of the confederate's bacon they had bacon, bacon was, reserves they did they, we had bacon reserves right here and um i don't know if you've ever heard of uh bread riots so the bread riots were basically women were rising up all over the confederacy uh to get more bread get bread at a cheaper price here in atlanta we actually had bread and bacon riots so yeah bacon a big part of what we still eat and um well you had
2: bread with a side of bacon Bread riots. with <laughs> a side
7: with the bacon riots yeah and there's actually a place in downtown atlanta um at the municipal market, which is Atlanta's oldest market, hundred-year-old market, and at that market, you can still go there and get you know buy a whole hog. You can you know get pork belly. You can get every part of the pig.
2: Difficult to get in your carry-on bag.
7: Yeah, difficult to get on your carry-on bag, and probably a little bit smelly to take home with you. Yeah, but delicious to eat right here.
2: All right, so we've got grits, we got Johnny cakes, yeah, and we got bacon, yeah, and they're still around.
7: And they're still around, and they've been around for. O- over 10,000 years.
2: We're talking with Akilah McConnell, the author of A Culinary History of Atlanta. And when we come back, you're going to take me from the past to the present, and we're going to figure out where we're going to find all this stuff where we even want to go buy it and eat it, okay? Sounds great. All right. Back with more from the Whitley Hotel here in Atlanta as I Travel continues. Peter Greenberg here at Akilah McConnell back right after this.
4: Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel, will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. 43
2: minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you as Eye on Travel continues from the Whitley Hotel right here in Buckhead in Atlanta. We've been talking to Akilah McConnell, the author of A Culinary History of Atlanta. All right. we So we, we've, we figured out the entire derivation of <laughs> bacon and grits and Johnny cakes. Uh, but now it's time to figure out the evolving food scene here in Atlanta, which, by the way, is exploding all the time. All the time. Uh, I've seen all around the country now and all around the world. I've seen it in Lisbon. I've seen it in, in Warsaw food halls. Mm-hmm. You got them here, too.
7: Of course. And, uh, you know, there is this tendency to think that food halls are a modern thing. It's not. Um, actually, here in Atlanta, we have one of the first what I would consider food halls over 100 years old, like I was saying, the municipal market. That was actually built in 1924. And it was actually known as the Sweet Auburn Kerr Market because, of course, segregation was a huge part of Atlanta's history. And in the 1920s, African-Americans weren't allowed to sell inside the market. They were required to sell out on the curb so unofficially came to be known as the sweet auburn curb market that's still what it's called today but even back then, it was a food hall. Back then, they had um, you know places where you could go in, you could get food. Now, of course, there's now, again, this resurgence in food halls with Ponce City Market coming into play, Crog Street Market, there's food halls up in Marietta, there's food halls all over the place popping up. But this is not a brand new thing. This is an old thing that is being made new again.
2: Okay, now, I mentioned bacon before in the last segment, <laughs> right? And you said that was distinctly Georgian. It is, Okay, I've got one more. Yes. Root beer.
7: Root beer, yeah. Root beer is very much a Georgia thing as well. Uh, in fact, if you ask me very...
2: Well, in the old days, were was sarsaparilla.
7: It was. And you know what's actually funny? Very first food entrepreneur in the city was an old woman and her daughter. And by the way, historians have not recorded her name. Who sold root beer and gingerbread. So very first food sold in Atlanta was root beer. Before it was even in Atlanta.
2: See, now if you opened a store today and and offered me root beer and ginger snaps, I'm I'm all in. (laughs) I am all in.
7: Well, you know what's really cool is there's this big, uh, you know, real movement in the craft beer scene. And a lot of these craft beer companies are making the most amazing root beer. Like Red Hair Brewing up in Marietta, they make incredible root beer.
2: Up in in Monroe, Wisconsin, uh, a lot of breweries up there. Small small batch breweries. They're doing root beer. Yeah, it's
7: yeah. I mean it's a big thing. And um, you know, Red Hair. I think not only are they doing root beer, they're doing grapefruit soda. Uh, there's a place here in Atlanta. They're uh, called Golda that makes kombucha, uh, which is you know fermented tea. So a lot of really innovative soda and alternative drink manufacturers coming into play right now too.
2: So given the history and given your passion for history, when you want to go out to dinner or breakfast or lunch, where are you going?
7: Oh, so many places. Um, But, you know, it depends on what you want. Do you want to eat classic, essential Southern cooking, or do you want to go and get some immigrant cuisine, or do you want to get a mix of the two and get new Southern?
2: What, what, Vietnamese (laughs) Southern? Well, you could, yeah. But, But for me, if I'm coming to Atlanta, especially for the first time, I want to immerse myself in... Really old school Southern cooking.
7: So if you want real old school Southern cooking, then there's a couple of places that you know you have to go to. You have to go to Busy Bees. Um, that is one of the original Atlanta soul food restaurants. Um, it's actually where Dr. King and Ambassador Young used to plan the Civil Rights Movement. And
2: let me guess, they've got mac and cheese and grits.
7: They do indeed. And but their fried chicken is killer. There, uh, you you want to collard greens and collard greens, of course. Um, you want to go to Paschal's also. That was actually known as the unofficial headquarters of the Civil rights movement. Mary Max Tea Room, another one of those spots. Mary Max actually was a tea room because women at that time in the 60s were not allowed to own restaurants. So women got around it by creating tea rooms that just serve food. It was just another way to call it a restaurant. Um, and uh, Pity Pat's Porch, which is actually kind of- Say that again? Pity Pat's Porch. <laughs> so, have you ever read Gone with the Wind or watched Gone with the Wind? Of
2: course. Of
7: course, and so Well, it's, Margaret Mitchell's house yes, is around here, so yeah. It is, and uh, so Pity Pat's Porch is actually named after Aunt Pity Pat in the Gone with the Wind book, but what's funny about it is it actually was intended to be a tourist restaurant. It was started up by a guy in the 60s and 70s who came down to Atlanta from New Jersey. And he was like, why aren't there any Gone with the Wind restaurants here? So uh, they, they serve, all of their menus are on fans. It's super fun.
2: Now, you got to tell me about the macaroon.
7: Yeah. So I was, I was, you know, I think the big thing that's happening right now here in Atlanta is this huge, um, really interesting part in um in immigrant cuisine. And one of those is that there is a place named MacLab Bakery, and Mac Lab Bakery makes the most incredible macarons, French macarons. Better
2: than La Durée in Paris? Be-
7: better than La Durée in Paris.
2: And less expensive.
7: And less expensive, <laughs> and they make unicorn macarons, too.
2: Oh, my God. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> Akilah McConnell, the author of A Culinary History of Atlanta and Macaroon Fanatic. How about yes, that? Yes, absolutely. Hey, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Back with more from the Whitley in
4: Atlanta, right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel. For more on anything you've heard or to ask a question, just visit our website at petergreenberg.com. Now, once again, here's Peter Greenberg. It is
2: 52 minutes after the hour. Peter Greenberg here with you from the Whitley Hotel here, formerly the Ritz-Carlton, right here in Buckhead in Atlanta. You can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. My next guest, another native Atlantan. Yes, uh, and also the author of A Hundred Things to Do in Atlanta Before You Die, Brittany Bose. How are you?
10: Hi. Good. How are you? Thanks for having me.
2: Yeah. So you grew up about 30 minutes from here, right? So
10: Yeah. I grew up in Alpharetta. It's about 30 minutes north of here.
2: And what gave you the idea? I mean, there, there are a hundred thing books that all over the place, but I like it that, that you're a native of Atlanta because you actually actually know these things.
10: Right. Yeah. So um you know, I had the chance to discover a lot of the city when I grew up in Alpharetta, but I actually just moved to Buckhead about a year ago. So a lot of doors opened up for me to kind of get out there a little more and see what's out there. And, you know, it was really hard to narrow down to 100 things. But Well,
2: for me, if I were going to do 100 things, my, my criteria tell me if you think this is crazy, but my criteria is to do all the things that are not necessarily in the guidebooks or the brochures to begin with right. that are accessible to you right? The hidden gems.
10: Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually uh, work for narcity.com and we're a travel things to do website. So we're constantly researching things that people don't know about here. So that's really what I do full time. All right.
2: So of those hundred things, give me one I don't know about.
10: All right. So that's a good challenge. Uh, So there's actually something called 54 columns. Uh, Have you heard of that? I have. You have. Okay. Yeah. Uh, You want me to Go on to the next one. Uh,
2: no, no, no. Okay. My, no, my, my listeners need to know.
10: Okay, good. So uh, this is an old Fourth Ward Park. And, um, you know, I feel like there's so much going on in that park that people kind of overlook this art installation that was uh, established in 1999. Um, so not
2: that long ago.
10: Not that long ago. And 21 years ago. It's, you know, it's really simple, but it's very mysterious. It's just um, a cluster of 54 narrow concrete structures right in the middle of the park, right off Highland Avenue. And um, it's So actually, it was an art installation. Yeah. And it's meant to mimic the Atlanta skyline with all the different types of buildings there. You know, there are some that are 10 feet, some are 20 feet. So it's very simple, but it's it's just really cool. And it's interactive. And it's a, a really cool gem, hidden gem.
2: And there's another one that I actually know about that you that's in your book. Okay. And it's Korean.
10: Is it the Noguchi Playscape?
2: Nope, oh, okay. it's the spa.
10: Oh, the Jeju Spa. Yeah,
2: explain <laughs> yeah. that one. That's why. Well,
10: you know, it's funny because this is such a big building, but I feel like when people drive by, it's actually in Gwinnett. Um, people drive not by- that, Not that far from Not here. far, maybe no. 25, 30 minutes, 40, depending on traffic, you know how the traffic is here. But um, it's actually a nude Korean spa. Both men and women can go. You know, there's separate rooms for each, but um, it's only $30 and you can spend all day in there. It's open 24 hours, seven days a week. And you can pamper yourself. They've got, like, an infrared light station. They have, I think, seven to nine different um, saunas and spa rooms. And, you know, they're all different. They all have different, you know, ways of kind of cleansing the mind and body. And then, you know, they've got the a la carte services, massages, pedicures, stuff like that, which you pay for. But, I mean, you can't really beat a spa day for 30 bucks. You
2: can't. (laughs) Now, there's another place that's in your book that, for me, when I think of Atlanta— you know, I might think of a barbecue, I might think of uh, steaks, I might think of uh, some of the new ethnic cuisine that's come in over the last 20 years, right? The Vietnamese mm-hmm. like Colonial and stuff like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. But then there's this pizza place, Wild Slice. Yeah. They have, how big is this pizza?
10: So they actually serve five pound slices of pizza. <laughs> yeah, it's huge. I mean, you That's you, not a pizza,
2: that's a weapon.
10: Right, and I mean like it's as tall as a small child. So um, that's actually in Roswell and um They've got really good pizza, and they also have kind of a secret No, they have menu. really big pizza. Big pizza, but they've got some top-secret menu items, too. Um, so if you call ahead, you can actually get – There's a. it's an Indian-inspired pizza with uh, paneer and chicken tikka masala on it. So you just have to call ahead um, to have them make that for you. And they also have these uh, garlic knot witches.
2: Oh, no, the, those garlic things are unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, even, I wouldn't even have the pizza. I just load up on those. I'd walk out, you know, three sizes bigger, but I would have that.
10: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really good. Yeah, They are it's rich. They're rich. Yeah, you know, they are.
2: <laughs> All right. So we've got the spa under control with the Koreans. We got mm-hmm. the wild, the wild slice of the five pound pizza, which yeah. is crazy. But what about hidden parks in town?
10: Um. So there are so many parks and, you know, you've got the Beltline. So you've got Inman Park, you've got. Grant Park, which is a good one. Um, and a lot of these parks have festivals that people don't realize about, too. You know, there is something going on all the time. We've got Taste of Atlanta that everybody knows about and Music Midtown, but. Yeah,
2: but you also have Cascade Springs.
10: Cascade Springs, yes. Okay, yeah. So that's actually one with a lot of history. Um, so there's a beautiful waterfall. It's a nature preserve. It's known for its nice hikes and nice trails, but. It actually dates back to the Civil War era. There, the Battle of Utoy Creek was actually fought there and the earthworks um, are there. So it has a lot of historical significance. But yeah. You know. And the
2: nice thing about that is 120 acres. Yeah. I mean, you can really spend the day.
10: Absolutely. It's beautiful. And you know, there's so much nature around Georgia, but there's not much, you know, in the actual city. So it's really cool that this is about 10 miles north of the uh, airport. So it's actually in the city and it's beautiful. And
2: the way I look at it is this it's 120 acres. That's where you go to walk off the five pound pizza.
10: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really as simple plan. as that.
11: Uh-huh.
2: We're talking to Brittany, Bow- Brittany Bowes, the author of 100 Things to Do in Atlanta Before You Die. And please eat the pizza. Well, and try not to die. <laughs> hey, that music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We got a whole lot more coming. As Ion Travel returns to the Whitley Hotel right here in Atlanta, right after this. Brittany, thanks so much.
10: Thank you.
4: You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. And
2: welcome back aboard Eye on Travel for this uh, April weekend 2020. If you're just joining us, let me tell you where we're coming from. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 33 degrees, 44 minutes north, 84 degrees, 23 minutes west. We're coming to you from Atlanta, Georgia, and in particular, Buckhead at the Whitley Hotel. You can always find me at Peter at com with your name, phone number, question or problem, and we will solve it right here on the air. Anybody who's ever come to Atlanta who's left the hotel long enough to see part of the city will immediately become aware of the fact of its great military history. Uh, it's everywhere, and it goes way beyond gone with the wind, and it goes way beyond, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Uh, There's tremendous history here. And joining me now, someone who knows just a little bit about that, because he's got the title of senior (laughs) military historian at the Atlanta History Center, Gordon Jones. How are you, sir? Thanks, Peter. Doing great. So let's talk about this, because it goes back, you know, before the Civil War.
12: Right, right. Atlanta was founded as a railroad town in 1837 and because it was a railroad junction that's what made it a big target during the civil war for union armies
2: because they had to get in
12: had to get in and it was the gateway into the deep south into the manufacturing heartland of the confederacy
2: well guess what it's still the gateway to the deep south indeed it
12: is it's always been a transportation hub only now we use airplanes instead of trains
2: but let's go back to the trains for a second, because as the trains move, so did the armies. Exactly. So
12: this was the first campaign in the Civil War where both armies were entirely dependent upon the railroad. And that was that railroad that came from Chattanooga to Atlanta, the western and Atlantic. And that was the key to victory for the Union Army.
2: Without that, they couldn't have done it.
12: Without that, they could not have done it.
2: So when I'm coming to Atlanta now, what do I get a chance to see that brings me back to that period and I can actually embrace it?
12: Well, the number one thing I would say is you need to come to the Atlanta History Center. And there we have a wonderful is Civil that a War exhibition. Is that a shameless plug? That is a shameless plug. You know it. <laughs> and uh, not only a Civil War exhibition, but we also have the cyclorama painting of the Battle of Atlanta from 1886.
2: And look, you're, you're not small. You're on a 33-acre
12: campus. Indeed. We are a little oasis in the heart of Buckhead.
2: And what am I going to see there other than the painting? Walk me through this.
12: Sure. Well, first of all, you got 33 acres of grounds and gardens. Just a great place to go and stroll. We have three historic houses. We have a big giant museum with the cyclorama attached. And we have the Keenan Research Center, which is your library archives. And you forgot something. What did I forget? you got a train. Oh, yeah, we do. We have the Texas, the Locomotive Texas, which is tell me, Tell in. me about that. Yeah, tell me. Exactly. That's tied into that Western Atlantic Railroad. And there was a little incident in 1862 when one side tried to steal a locomotive, and the other side caught them. And the Texas, being on the Confederate side, side,
2: which side was stealing
12: it? Ah, well, the Union Army uh, was trying to steal it, and (laughs) the Confederates were trying to catch up to it. Now. The stolen locomotive is the general you can still see that up at Kennesaw at a great museum up there Uh, but the one that caught it the one that won the race that's the one that we have at the atlanta history center the the texas the texas
2: and that was steam all the way that was steam all
12: the way and we have done a complete restoration of that locomotive it was in service all the way through 1907 So it's really much more than just about the Civil War. It's really about how Atlanta developed as a railroad center.
2: All right, really stupid question. Could you fire it up and run it today? No, you'd explode the boiler. Really? You don't want to do that. Okay.
12: No, it, it, it was taken out of service because it was just so old and there was so much metal fatigue and it just couldn't run anymore. But, you know, it's like any mechanical piece of equipment. You replace parts and replace parts over time until you can't use it anymore. And only then does it become an artifact.
2: Okay. So what's the biggest surprise that's going to await me at, at the museum?
12: Ah, I think the biggest surprise is when you walk into that cyclorama and you are absolutely surrounded by this scene of the Battle of Atlanta in July, 1864. And when you realize that that scene uh, was for the time of its creation in the 1880s, it was the biggest, baddest, most incredible entertainment that you had ever seen. It was like a movie, it was like virtual reality, and this is a time before movies and before even color photography. And this is a 360 degree... Painting in the round and you're standing in the middle, and so the, the scene surrounds you.
2: And in terms of its historical significance, you mentioned 1864, was this a turning point?
12: It was, because if Atlanta had not fallen to the Union armies, you may very well have had a situation in which Lincoln loses his bid for reelection in the North, and there is a negotiated peace with the Confederacy, perhaps with slavery still intact, uh, but with that defeat in Atlanta, in Atlanta, with that victory in Atlanta, uh, that was the great turning point, the last great turning point of the Civil War that really assured Union victory.
2: And that's when they knew.
12: And that's when they knew, yeah. Because when, when Lincoln was on the path to reelection, then you know that the Union war effort is going to keep going until the ultimate defeat of the Confederacy and the end of slavery. And that's what gave them the confidence to go forward. I think so. I think so. So really, you know, Atlanta, Atlanta occupies a unique spot. I mean, really, this is the place that helped determine the outcome of American history. This is the place that really helped shape our nation the way we know it. This is super important, particularly today when we're looking at our uh, political environment. You need to know what happened back then in the Civil War, the most seminal event in our history.
2: Well, as someone once said, if you can't remember the past, you're doomed to repeat it.
12: Or if not repeat it, then at least you'll you'll get a rhyme every time, and you'll and you'll make the same mistake and make the same mistakes. Yes. So what's the overriding lesson from the museum? I think the overriding lesson is the more you know about history and the world, the sweeter your life is, and the better prepared you are to take on the present and the future. That's what we're after. We're, we're a place where you can hopefully find some personal enrichment. And open seven days a week? Open seven days a week, we are. Uh, we're open 10 to 5.30, except on Sundays when we're open 12 to 5.30.
2: <laughs> and other than the cyclorama and knowing about the importance of that one battle, that turning point in the war, what's the one artifact that you have there that people are just completely blown away by? Mm, well, there's, there's,
12: there's so many of them, uh, let's see. What's the one that blows you away? The one that, well, the one that blows me away um, is actually one of the simplest, plainest uh, pieces that you would never think that anyone would save, which is a piece of hard tack, a piece of hard bread that was the standard ration for soldiers on both sides of the, of the conflict? And what are the chances that an intact piece of bread uh, would be saved and probably, when you look at it, it's probably still edible? And that's in our Turning Point exhibition.
2: It's down, it's, it's down to a piece of bread. It's down
12: to a piece of bread. I mean, look, that's the basic building blocks. What do you need? Army needs to travel on and, its
2: stomach. Exactly. Right? Unbelievable. Wonder Bread, Building Strong Bodies 12 Ways. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Gordon Jones, Senior Military Historian at the Atlanta History Center. Sir, thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. I want to come see the bread. Yeah, I'll show you. I'm I'm ready. Cool. Back with more from Atlanta at the Whitley Hotel right after this.
4: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion on Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg.
2: It's 18 minutes after the hour. Peter Greenberg here with you from the Whitley Hotel here in Atlanta, Georgia, in Buckhead. We can always get me at Peter at PeterGreenberg.com. With your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, PeterGreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations all around the world that are giving back to the people who need it the most, and opportunities for you to immerse yourself in an up-close-and-personal way and do the exact same thing every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities, and Atlanta's certainly no exception. Check out the folks at Open Hand Atlanta. They were founded back in 1988. They're a nonprofit, and they're helping to eliminate disability and timely death due to nutrition-sensitive chronic disease by creating access to, guess what? Healthy food. And what they're doing every day Believe it or not, they're preparing, packing, and delivering nearly 5,000 healthy meals every day throughout Metro Atlanta, and you can get to volunteer as well. No experience necessary. You'll be packing, you'll be delivering, you'll be helping out, and the best part is you're going to the communities where people really live, you're hanging out with the locals who live here, and when you're finished volunteering, who better to give you the real tour of Atlanta than the locals themselves? Easy to do, morning, afternoon, evening, a weekend, whatever. You should do it. And let me know what happens when you do it, because I'm telling you right now, what you get back from what you give back is exponential in return. If you want more information, that's an easy one to do. It's openhandatlanta.org slash volunteer, or go right to our website for the global list at petergreenberg.com. My next guest is sort of emblematic of a problem I have in so many cities, and that is most people don't know about all the great museums there. They, they, they know maybe one museum, and then they decided they're gonna, they'll are gonna they do that museum. And then, or, or they'll go to a resort or a hotel and never even leave the resort or the hotel. Uh, Atlanta has great museums, and one of them is called the High Museum of Art, and most of you have not heard about it. But my next guest better know about it, because he's the director of it. Rand Suffolk, how are you, sir?
9: I'm great, thank you very much for having me. And
2: you understand what I'm saying in that introduction. I mean, people, they'll, they'll know about the baseball stadium they'll know about you know they'll know about the hawks they'll know about some of the museums but the high museum is is is, a, is i won't say it's a hidden gem but it's a gem
9: well it's certainly a gem uh, we've been around since 1926 yeah. we've been in our current location since uh, 1983 uh, where when we built uh, an incredible richard meyer designed building one of a uh, great pritzker prize winning architect and then flash forward to 2005 we nearly tripled our square footage Uh, by hiring Renzo Piano, a second Pritzker Prize winner, uh, that really transformed the museum into the world-class institution that we are today.
2: And if you're looking for an experience that is going to allow you to embrace American, European, uh, historic art and design, photography, it's all there.
9: That's absolutely right. We're not an encyclopedic institution, but we're a general fine art museum. We have over 17,000 objects across seven different collecting areas.
2: And if you're looking for a little bit of a cultural immersion because you are in the South, you have that too. You have a Picturing the South exhibit.
9: We do. Uh, right now, that's actually an incredible commission that we've done for nearly 25 years. We've reached out to contemporary photographers. We've asked them to spend a year uh, traveling the American South and really being inspired by what they saw and creating a body of work based on that experience. And then we ultimately reward them with an incredible exhibition. And currently, we have the work of Alex Harris up, who went throughout the American South looking at the burgeoning film industry here in all its myriad. Um, uh, incarnations manifestations or incarnations and put together a really an incredible body of work
2: and most people have such a stereotypical view of the South this is an eye opening exhibit
9: it is yeah I mean it really gives you a, a great sense as to the creativity that's here I mean the South is I think increasingly become earning a reputation and building on its reputation as being a real hotbed of creativity
2: and Considering the fact you've been around since the 20s or the late 20s, I mean, you must have storage facilities that are allowing you to rotate endlessly now.
9: Uh, We have. We do have about a 3,000-square-foot satellite facility that hosts the majority of our works. Uh, But we continue to grow, but we do so strategically.
2: everybody says that (laughs) it's
9: it's all true it's all true
2: but i mean how often are you rotating
9: well the permanent collection doesn't get rotated all that often i mean there are certain elements of it that it do but as you can imagine we always want our our fan favorites out there uh it allows our programming to gain traction and so forth but at any given time at the museum there's probably three to five temporary exhibitions that we have on display and those might come from our own permanent collection or be inspired by our permanent collection where will go out to public and private collections around the country or around the world and bring those works to Atlanta. Or we may take what's known as a can show in our field, which is that another organization or peer is has on put tour. together a show and we bring the show here and put it up and then create programs that are inspired by it.
2: But at the end of the day, it's all about storytelling.
9: Absolutely. Uh, it's about incorporating multiple voices and multiple viewpoints and really allowing people to come to the museum, hopefully looking at the world one way and leave having been, experienced a provocative idea, fallen in love with something of true beauty, um, had a great conversation with their spouse or their uh, you know, companion, and leaving, looking at the world in a very different way.
2: Now you've been with the museum about four years. That's right. What's the most provocative thing that hit you?
9: The most provocative thing that's hit me? Um, I think probably the most provocative thing that that has hit me isn't provocation meaning not poke somebody in the eye, but made Eye-opening. us think. But made us think differently yeah. is an incredible work uh, by a contemporary artist named Kara Walker. Kara Walker is from Atlanta. She grew up here as a teenager. She went to art college, uh, design school here. Uh, she grew up. She was, I think, at the time she earned it, she was the youngest. Um, MacArthur Fellow. Um, so incredibly talented. She, she's become one of the most consequential artists of her generation, and she created this incredible work that's inspired uh, by Stone Mountain, which is uh, the largest Confederate memorial here, just outside of Atlanta. Uh, so it's about something that's very close to us. It's just about something in our own backyard, but it really does challenge you to think about American history at large uh, and the role in which race has played a role.
2: And then the Gates of No Return.
9: Uh, that's right, uh, yes, that's a, that's an incredible, that was an incredible um, opportunity for us. We just opened that show a couple weeks ago. It highlights the work of a Ghanaian, Ghanaian artist, Pa Joe. Who and the, created, slave was exactly. all about the slave trade, it was all about the slave trade. Exactly, it was all about the slave trade. The gates of no return referring to the forts and castles along the African coastline uh, where enslaved people were brought before they made this incredibly perilous transatlantic journey.
2: You know, I talked earlier about stereotypes what stereotypes have you been able because of these exhibits to basically either eliminate or mitigate
9: you know i think that oftentimes people look at art museums as being a very elitist institution and for uh, typically for only a very specific segment of a community and what we've tried to do over the last 4 years is ultimately to become a very a profoundly different magnet within the community we want the people coming through our doors uh, to reflect the art and we want ourselves to reflect the audience that we serve and so if you look at the changes that we've made, that what's been particularly affirming for us is the, the demographics of, of who's coming to the museum have changed considerably.
2: We're talking to Rand Suffolk, the director at the High Museum of Art. And when you think about it, because you're also contemporary artists are being, are being reflected here and contemporary photographers, women of, women of color, gays, Uh, People who weren't properly represented before are now finding a home.
9: That's right. If you took a four-year snapshot of our exhibition schedule, what you would see is that over 50%, in fact, 62% of the exhibitions that we've put on view either highlight or focus on, not a token this or a token that, but highlight or focus on important work by artists of color, women artists, and gay artists.
2: And when somebody comes to the museum, what's going to be the one thing that's going to surprise them that they're not expecting to see?
9: I hope that it's a combination of incredible Southern hospitality—the uh, sense that you are absolutely welcome there—and I hope that they're going to see themselves reflected in one way, shape, or form in their museum.
2: And what are the other senses that are? Is there an audio portion of this? Is there is there a music component?
9: Um, well, we do. We don't. Um, we do. We did launch an incredible program about a year and a half ago called Heart Match. And it's uh, ultimately, it's it's sort of Tinder. Uh, for your museum visit. Uh, we've got about 100 of our highlight works on display. You can go through there, swipe left or swipe right, to determine which ones you love and which ones you don't. Ultimately, oh, you're that, swiping
2: again. Oh, my God. That, okay. that
9: ultimately creates a tour for you that you can map out, that you so can it's, download it's to it's the phone. High
2: Museum of Art slash Tinder? Is that what this is? No, no, no. no. It's,
9: it's heartmatch.org, I believe, <laughs> is how you get to it. Uh, but we have embraced their methodology to kind of create self-guided tours in that respect.
2: And how long would it take me? Because you've been uh, to get to actually get through the museum.
9: Well, I think it depends on. I mean, you can give yourself the rock star tour and be through there in an hour. Um, well, why but would you do that? To exactly. You? Uh, but it's a place where certainly uh, it rewards slow looking. And once you find a few things that you fall in love you with, you just spend give time me the it. branding
2: message. We reward slow
9: looking. There you go.
2: I love that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Last question. Sure. What's the one object there that I'm going to look at the slowest?
9: What kind of a question is that? That's impossible. I don't even know what kind of artwork you like. Um, we I asked
2: what you liked.
9: Oh, what I like. I'm yeah. sorry. Um, well I can't I can't give you that answer right. We just closed an exhibition on Romary Bearden, which we have a great work of his. The more you look, the more you see.
2: That's your second brand message. Okay, we got it. Rand Suffolk, the director at the High Museum of Art here in Atlanta. Thank you so much. Thank you. And back with more from the Whitley Hotel right here in Buckhead in Atlanta, Georgia, as Ion on travel continues.
4: Right. After Have a this. travel question or problem? Just email Peter at Peter at PeterGreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to Peter Now, here's Peter.
2: And that flat attendant call button means we're still on the air and in the air here at the Whitley Hotel here in Atlanta. Peter Greenberg, as Ion on travel continues. Uh, if I go back to my very first days coming to Atlanta, um, when I stayed at this hotel, it wasn't the Whitley; it was the Ritz Carlton in Buckhead, one of the original Ritz Carlton hotels, uh, if not the first, certainly one of the one of the three first. And now they changed the name to the Whitley. It's now part of like the Starwood Group in a sense because the luxury collection. Uh, Joining me now, the managing director of the Whitley, Shah Adil. Uh, Do you remember this as the Ritz-Carlton? Peter, good morning, and I I, I was very familiar with that.
13: It was one of the two Ritz-Carlton's ever built, and that's where the story started. So this place used to be the place to be, and the place to be seen. So yes, this is an iconic uh, hotel.
2: And in all the years it was open, it went through its, its own share of renovations and, and restructuring. But now it's rebranded. Correct. And the name itself, Whitley, has particular significance in Butler, in Buckhead.
13: That is correct, uh, Peter. I think uh, it's very important uh, to talk about this. So John Whitley was one of the, um, the original uh, founders of Buckhead. Him and his friend, Irby, um, they were very um, social. They wanted to get people together, um, and Irby had a tavern, which is not too far from the hotel, the, the original tavern, and as one of the days, uh, John was traveling on his horse, and he had his favorite gun uh, on his shoulder, and he saw a buck, uh, and he shot the buck, took the buck head, Here it comes. <laughs> and put it on a stake outside of uh, Irby's tavern, and that place became meet me at the buck head, so that's where the name Buckhead came.
2: Okay, I have to ask a stupid question. Where is that Buckhead today? <laughs>
13: I'm not sure where it is right now, but the, the tavern is still there. We, really? Yes. It's not. It's about a mile away from us. It's um, a place we always talk about when people are new to the area, uh, for them to come and see. So.
2: So that's the history, and now the name for the hotel is after the guy who killed the buck.
13: Correct. And we looked at a n- number of uh, names uh, when we were uh, wanted to decide on a ho- hotel's name. But as part of Luxury Collection, which is part of Marriott, uh, the, we have over 100 hotels around the world. And the focus is really on the neighborhoods. So the name John Whitley or the Whitley Hotel, was, I thought it was very important and just fit the right uh um, purpose of having this hotel, so that's how we named the hotel The Whitley.
2: But you can proudly claim there's not one deer head mounted on any wall in this hotel.
13: That, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> we do have a bronze uh, buck in our lobby, just to signify I
2: understand. It. Yeah. But you've gone through a major renovation, Correct. obviously, and a major redesign. Correct. What's changed?
13: It's um, if, you, if you look at it, it's, um, the hotel was iconic, as we, we talked about. It was beautiful. Uh, but what we have done it is as we are in Atlanta, in the middle of a sudden hospitality, uh, we wanted to make sure that that reflected that. So if you look around in Atlanta or drive around, there are beautiful mansions uh, or homes which have porches. And that's a, a, a very welcoming thing. When I imagine you and I sitting across from each other's homes in on a porch uh, drinking uh, sweet tea, and inviting each other in our homes. So we wanted to bring that hospitality in our hotel. So obviously we could not build a porch around the hotel. We brought the porch inside of our lobby. So if you see, if you walk around, you will see those chairs. Uh, you'll see a fireplace. So what we wanted to do was to take the original idea of gathering place for Irby and John Whitley and bring it to our home. So that's the we've opened it up uh, we have beautiful art in the hotel which relates to the story.
2: You know you mentioned rocking chairs I go to certain airports and I see they have rocking chairs there. But my respect my, my reaction to those rocking chairs is absolutely negative because at an airport what a rocking chair says is you're going to be here a while. A while. I don't want to be there a while. Rocking chair in a hotel is a different experience and we
13: want you to be here when you come in you're coming to your to you're coming home. You're coming to your family and friends, and we would like you to be here for a long time. And what did you do for the room design? We took the same concept uh, in, in our guest rooms to make it more homely, make it more More homey,
2: not homely. Home, homey. Trust me on that.
13: Yeah. And more residential and wanted to make sure that people feel more comfortable, very comfortable staying here and staying there for a long time.
2: But what did you do specifically in terms of the design to make that happen? Uh, what I noticed is you concentrated more on light. Correct. Uh, I remember the old Ritz Carlton It didn't have a lot of light. It was Courier and Ives prints on the walls, and the light was subdued. It, it drove me nuts because you co- you, you want to be able to think and see and read and live in your in your in your home space in the room. Correct.
13: And as I, I mentioned to you, Peter, the concept was this is not a hotel room. This is not an inn. It is your home. You're coming in in a spacious bright room where you can sit and watch TV, relax, read a book, or whatever you want to do, uh, and you're comfortable in it. So lighting is very important and great point.
2: And of course, late at night, a deer comes running through the hall. No? No. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. I'm trying to get the myth going <laughs> yeah, yeah.
13: here. It, it, but we do have our, on our artwork, yes. uh, which has uh, some uh, images of Buck in, 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 in the wild.
2: Okay, so late at night, the art comes off the wall. <laughs> no, okay, fine. Adil, <laughs> <laughs> Managed director okay. at the Whitley Hotel, right here in Atlanta. Formerly the Ritz Carlton, now a completely new branded experience. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. We'll be back with more of Ion Travel without the buck when we return right after this.
4: Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. I on Travel will be right back. Now, back to I on Travel.
2: It's 43 minutes after the hour. Peter Greenberg here with you as I on Travel continues from the Whitley Hotel right here in Atlanta, Georgia. You can always reach me at Peter at PeterGreenberg.com. With your name, phone number, question, or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. Uh, when I first came to Atlanta in the 1970s, I was amazed by where my friends took me. And and, and it proved a point, which, of course, is the, is almost really the basis of, of my next guest book, that if you want to find history, you got to go under you got to go underground. And in fact, it was called the underground. And what I saw when I got here, and the thing that I distinctly remember, and at that time, believe it or not, they were even selling this at the airport. You could actually land at the Atlanta airport and buy a complete side of bacon at the airport and haul it on the plane. Can you imagine that? Well, you could find that in the underground, too. And in fact, there was a store there that was owned by the former governor, Lester Maddox, uh, where he would sell ax handles because that's what he used to fight integration at his shops. And it was just a crazy conglomeration of stores and culture and history. And guess what? That's how I first really started to appreciate Atlanta by going underground. In fact, that's the title of my next guest book Atlanta underground by Jeffrey Morrison. Jeffrey, welcome. Thank you. Uh, You're a practicing architect. So of course you're fascinated with that stuff. But, tell me and paint the picture for me because it's more than just stores it goes way before the stores doesn't it
14: yeah certainly it uh, actually goes back to the founding of atlanta um and i got and the trains and too. the trains yeah and so i was drawn to the railroad history and um the junction that the city was built around and uh, this small little district that is now largely overlooked um, but is filled with a lot of rich history
2: And, you know, when you take a look at the history of America, you have to follow the railroads. They, you know, people think that Dwight Eisenhower once said, you know, America didn't build the interstate highway system, the interstate highway system built America. Well, we'd have to go back a little bit further. It was the railroads that built America. We used to tell time by railroads and they all came underground here.
14: Certainly. Yeah. Um, So there were three railroads that came together here and there was uh, no city here before the railroads. And, Even when the junction was planned, they didn't anticipate any kind of a town or city growing here. um, It was just a stop. It was just a stop, yeah. And nobody really understood the significance of um, what a railroad junction linking the southeast would really become. And the trains came coming here through when? Uh, In the late 1830s through the 1850s. um, And... Eventually, it set up this uh, network of railroads across the southeast that um, then became very significant um, from a mil- uh, military aspect in the Civil War. And
2: the underground
14: now? Uh, well, the underground, first of all, none of it is actually underground, which is some of the fascination. I know, but you think it is because you got to go down a little bit. Exactly, yeah. So... Um, in the early twentieth century um, having this giant railroad yard in the middle of the city became problematic and so they started building bridges viaducts uh, to cross over the tracks and they just continued building more and more and then buildings and plazas uh... and starting to enclose the entire area as this um, uh... underground area for the railroads and then uh... through the latter part of the twentieth century the railroad traffic declined and it was, it was left as this kind of empty space under the city. And today? And today, uh, it's still a combination of empty spaces. Um, a lot of um, our large convention centers and arenas are in the area. And, um, and if
2: you happen to be an architecture nut or an architect like you, it's still a, a source of great fascination.
14: Yeah, there's. Uh, I was drawn down there by the history, but uh, then I found a lot of really fascinating spaces. Um, the the architecture and the forms, and it, it looks abandoned, but it's, it's actually quite fascinating.
2: What's the biggest surprise
14: about the underground today? Um, the biggest surprise to me is that even though it looks empty and stoic, it's actually always changing. Um, I lead walking tours. I've been doing that for 12 years and uh, I have to kind of change it every once in a while because there's always things being torn down and rebuilt.
2: But from an architectural perspective and the little touches that the builders would put on, are there what's the biggest architectural surprise?
14: Uh, I think just some of the giant spaces that are uh, discovered underneath what people might think of as the, um, Uh, the ground plane up above uh, and then coming down and seeing railroad lines and bridges and tunnels um, that they didn't even know existed
2: the name of the book atlanta underground history from below the author jeffrey morrison jeffrey thank you so much for coming
14: it's been a pleasure
2: and suffice to say lester maddox is long gone (laughs) long gone (laughs) when we come back more from atlanta above ground here at the whitley hotel here in atlanta as ion travel continues right after this
4: Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion on Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion on Travel, For more on anything you've heard or to ask a question, just visit our website at petergreenberg.com. Now, once again, here's Peter Greenberg. It is 52 minutes after the hour. Peter
2: Greenberg here with you from the Whitley Hotel right here in Atlanta in Buckhead in Georgia. You can always reach me to petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, My next guest is from Germany, but he's actually been in Atlanta for about 24 years. That's correct. He's the executive chef here at the Whitley. Mark Sunderman, how are you, sir? Very well. How are you? I'm good. Uh, since you've been here for 24 years, uh, dating back to the Olympics, when you think about it. Yeah, right
15: after the Olympics. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
2: when I first came here, well, I first came here in the 70s, but when I was here for the Olympics, because in those days I was in NBC, so we had the Olympics. and. You know, you had barbecue places, and you had steak places, and you had more barbecue places, and you had steak places. That's correct. Things have
15: changed. Absolutely. I mean, this
2: is a city that is constantly evolving. I like the joke. I said it earlier on the show. I'll say it again. I'm convinced that nobody in Atlanta eats in their own kitchen. They all go out to dinner. They have the most underutilized kitchens in the world because you're a food town
15: now. Absolutely, yeah, unless you come to Chef Mark's house. Uh, I actually cook quite a bit at home as well, but yeah.
2: Okay, now that you open that door, (coughs) what do you cook at home?
15: Well, it actually depends on uh, when I get off work and what I find in a grocery store. And uh, I usually uh, do all local ingredients and uh, I cook dinner for my daughter and my wife.
2: Now, in this particular hotel, you had a chance to really start from scratch here in terms of the menu in terms of what you wanted to build into it. Absolutely. Right? Uh, and I ask this, every, every chef that comes on my show, I ask them the same question because it's always such a great answer. So now you're on the spot. You ready? As you were creating this menu, what's the one thing that you put on the menu that you thought, everybody's going to love this, and it just tanked? And then conversely, what's the one thing you said, do I really have to put this on the menu, and everybody loves it?
15: Well, uh, let's start with the last one. Um, I thought uh, our grown-up grilled cheese, and um, it's actually um, it's, it's amazing. You're talking my language now. You know that. Absolutely, absolutely. Keep it
2: simple and have fun.
15: <coughs> well, it's not, it's not really that simple. So okay, well, our, our grown-up grilled cheese actually has f- uh, four different white cheeses in there and uh, it comes with a little cup of uh, tomato soup and inside of it is some fresh basil bacon and tomatoes so could
2: i get it without the bacon
15: absolutely and can i get it with some grilled onions absolutely okay i'm in you want to have some avocado in there no No.
2: avocado (laughs) what what is everybody's obsession with avocado these days everybody has to have avocado toast everybody has to i mean why
15: it's just healthy or people think it's healthy Okay. Uh, we, we have avocado toast on our breakfast menu as well, and it's uh, literally flying off the shelves, as See, well as go. the grown-up grilled cheese.
2: Okay, now, you're not off the hook. Answer the first part of the question.
15: Yeah, um, that's quite difficult, really. Um, we had a few um, seafood dishes on there that wasn't working too well. Like? Um, we have a seared grouper, for example, right now with uh, jambalaya rice and uh, fried okra.
2: So, what you're saying is order it quickly because it's about to leave the menu?
15: Absolutely, probably, <laughs> most likely within the next four weeks. But, uh, you know, this dish is really a hit and miss. Um, you know, some nights we sell it, you know, seven to ten times, and some nights or some weeks we don't sell it at all. So, right. you know, it's. So, if you go to the employee cafeteria here at the hotel on some nights, it's a grouper special. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> All right, but let's get
2: serious here in terms of sourcing. The beautiful thing about being a chef in the year two thousand and twenty is you can source anything, right? Whatever you want, you can get. Absolutely, yeah.
15: So, what are you getting here to make it really work? Well, um, you know, since we have a southern-inspired menu, uh, we we like to keep it um, really local as much as possible. Uh, there's some great farms out here in, in Georgia, from you know cheese farms to meat farms to produce farms, and um, you know, it's really great. Even on a Saturday morning, sometimes we go to uh, farmers' markets and we just look around and see what's there, and then we come up with the special. So,
2: anything on the menu from Hamburg, Germany, where you're from?
15: Um, not on the restaurant menu, but well, I got to go to uh, your house. Well, sometimes, yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, we we have a dine around Munich actually on our catering menus, which is uh, strictly German. So there are some some German dishes on there. Not particular from Hamburg, but. Um, definitely germany so pretzel schnitzel uh some schnitzel some spätzle. <laughs> I, kn- I knew you know. it i knew it <laughs> <laughs> some cabbage german potato salad you know things like that
2: right and then a forklift truck to
15: get me out oh uh, yeah yeah you know, if you yeah. Eat, eat enough absolutely i know i knew it i knew yeah. it
2: what's the one thing that you that you've noticed about the tastes here in atlanta that you had to adjust to
15: Well, um, you know, obviously every taste bud is different, and, uh, you know, when I came um, from Europe, you know, it was a little bit um, an adjustment uh, for the taste, but in general, um, you know, people kind of have the same taste buds, you know, they want to have traditional classic dishes, so... Um, that's that's the reason why we really wanted to come up with the southern menu you know the comfort items on there like fried green tomatoes
2: so we're not getting to schnitzel and grits
15: uh, no schnitzel and grits but <laughs> we have grits and uh, or shrimp and grits I know you have to yeah. have shrimp and grits have to have it
2: mark cinnamon the executive chef at the Whitley Hotel thank you sir we really appreciate it absolutely it was a and pleasure. I'll see you for that four cheese grilled cheese sandwich please do hey that means, means you're out of time for the entire show lots of people to thank Dara Stone, our chief producer, Paul Hammernick doing the boards back in Connecticut, Alessandra B doing them right here in Atlanta with us, Dom Thompson, Jane Wilder, Julie Rowland, and the entire staff of the Whitley here. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you soon from another remote location somewhere around the world. Bye bye, everybody.
4: You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.
2: And thank you for listening to this special edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. For more interviews with the world's travel leaders, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, or review the Ion Travel Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news.
12: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail.